pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. So this is the one about questioning, where Pick explores the muffin defense. Okay, so we're going to talk education, bedside teaching, uh, all things germane to uh, clinician educators. Okay, tell me about a time that it failed. I was teaching one of your residents at the time on a critical zone of the ED, and he was really good. Uh, He was rock solid on his plans, he was managing multiple sick people, and I was asking him questions, and I was really probing, I thought, paying him attention and trying to figure out if there was anything I could teach him that day. And then he kind of rounded on me and he went, leave me alone. You are obviously uh, looking over my shoulder and not trusting me. And uh, I don't, I don't know what to do with you. Uh, Get away from me. And it was a huge fail. I have certainly had times where I start out with what I think is the classic Socratic questioning. uh, And I keep going through it. uh, And I start to get the look in the resident's eye that says, I've either lost them or I'm annoyed with you. Uh, I've failed at this a ton of times. So we do it, I feel like, every single time. Every time there's a presentation, we are always questioning them about something. Uh, When is it bad and goes south? And how can we do it better? Well, so I think of questioning like this. I think that that you need a goal with your questioning. And if we break questioning up into what we're going to get out of it, I think that there are some times where you're asking factual questions. Uh, There are some times where you're trying to get a resident to express their thought process so that you can better understand why they're thinking what they're thinking. Uh, and, And then there's that other side of questioning that I truly believe in, which is... It lets them know that I'm listening. So the first thing, the fact thing, is probably the least sort of good use of our time. Um, And then the last thing, I think, is one of the most important things, right? Coming from a uh, let's explore this together place of trust, like I'm I'm paying attention to you. If if I'm typing at my computer and writing seven orders, uh, it already seems like I'm ignoring you. And if then I get up and walk away and go, let me go see that guy, do you feel like you wasted your time? So, so I think questioning what you're saying from that last part has a real social side of it, and I think that it makes it so that both of us are involved with figuring out this patient. I like that. So I do think there is a role, though, for that first aspect, the questioning to figure out knowledge. So the sim people talk about uh, you put people in a situation where they don't perform perfectly, and then you teach them something from it, and they're more receptive to that knowledge. Absolutely. So we're, we, we talk out loud and think out loud to sort of let people see the workings of our mind, and we are questioning the presenter to try to get an insight into what is going on in there. How did you come to this conclusion, right? So we're really using it as a probe for how they're thinking, a probe for what their decision-making process is. Sometimes, but I, I think that the factual questioning is actually okay if it's not all that you're doing. So if you're looking at a case and there are three facts that you think are important for somebody to know, and you ask whether they know it rather than just tell them the three facts, I think that's a reasonable way to get people to buy into the situation. I will absolutely give you that with the caveat of they buy in when you explain or explore why that's a key fact. 
So otherwise, it becomes the, do you know the specific gravity of blood? Uh, oh, you don't, haha. Uh, and, and that's sort of that negative aspect of, oh, you're pimping me, you're, uh, I'm, I'm feeling bad because I couldn't come up with the answer. But if you said, oh, it seems like you didn't know this, and it makes the case you presented look very different, well, then you can explore again the decision-making part. So I am really happy that we are we no longer, as a specialty, uh, advocate things like what we used to call the gorilla rounds, right? So the gorilla rounds were uh, what I consider the most negative side of asking questions. And that would be, uh, you'd be walking around on rounds and whoever the preceptor was would look at the group, find whoever is uh, most nervous looking uh, and start to ask them questions about a case. And every question they get right, the questions would get harder and harder until they finally got something wrong, even if it was minutia. And then the, you know, head doc would turn to them, tell them they're an idiot, uh, and explain what they wanted to explain in the first place. I've never heard it called guerrilla rounds, but it seems familiar to me. And of course, the classic med student defense was the muffin defense, where you would have a muffin and you'd just take a giant bite of it as the question began. And you, then you were immune to the next series. Uh, I think that that same scenario you described, though, might happen in a way that doesn't seem so negative or punitive or, or the point is to shame and point you. Uh, it might happen to, which is what I assume happened in the story that I told to begin. I'm trying to figure out where you stop getting it right and that establishes sort of an assessment of you and where I can start to think of what I could teach you. And of course, it's all about the intent. It's all about the delivery. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that it's really easy sometimes to teach medical students, first year residents, because anything you teach them, uh, you can figure that they don't know everything they need to know. As you hit second, third, fourth year residents, I think it becomes more and more important to establish a starting point. But you have to do it in a positive way or you're gonna lose your audience. And then you mentioned once you have multiple repeated contacts with your resident and now they beget to be a senior resident you've hopefully established that this is a thing we do it is okay to be wrong uh, there is I, I already pre-assessed you so I know kind of where you're at uh, and so again the intent the trust level is already there it's not the same as brand new rotator med student who you just met and then firing 17 questions at him. So how do you establish that kind of relationship? How in the beginning of the conversation do you say we're in a conversation uh, that it is okay to be right wrong because you don't you don't want the learner to start out already feeling like they failed. So I hope that you work in a place where it's you're not the only person doing this and the culture of the place is that we ask questions, we explore things, we get things wrong. But one thing is you give them permission to be wrong by actually getting something wrong or admitting when you've gotten something wrong. So sometimes I, if I am starting with this probing stuff, I will start with something that I don't know the answer to. And I will say, as I ask the question, I don't know the answer, what's going on? Uh, and then we look it up together and we have this shared, let's learn from whatever's going on. And once you've done something like that, then the person doesn't expect you to be perfect and they don't expect themselves to be perfect. And I think that helps a lot. I will admit to probably having led with the, here's a question. And after the five second pause go, yeah, I don't know either. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows, uh, but here's some things that people have said, something like that. Uh, I do a little gotcha occasionally. So one other thing I've done, uh, and this was completely gimmicky, 
uh, is I would start uh, the case presentations with a, a book of or a card of Trivial Pursuit, uh, and the two of us together would try to figure out the answer of, you know, which rock band from the 80s did this, that, or the other thing, and that establishes a, uh, nobody expects you to get all the right answers. I never heard of that. I kind of like it, and it's one of the things that people who started out working when there were three-hour lulls on overnights could probably do. I don't think I'm going to see that in my bedside ED anytime soon. So one of the questions that I've asked around questioning is, is what I'm doing the Socratic method? It gets referred to as that all the time. And the other thing that's usually negative is the pimping. I think I even mentioned like pimping is always bad, but uh, what I did to the resident was perceived by him as pimping and, and very negative. Uh, so uh, I guess to answer your first question, is it so Socratic? I think it can be. And the idea is that you are leading someone through questioning to make them do the work in their head of either following a path of logic or pointing out where that logic has failed or even kind of leading them towards a decision rather than beginning with the end and saying, here's what we're going to do with this patient. So I think we both agree that the Socratic method is not, I ask you a question, you get it wrong, and I tell you why you're wrong. I think the Socratic method is a method of questioning to allow people to come to the conclusion either that they're wrong or so that you can point out a flaw in their logic and then allow them to grow into a different answer. So it is not a let's make someone wrong thing. It is a let's show the reasoning thing. Show your work. Show your work. So if you question people in such a way that encourages them to examine their work, they might come to their own conclusion about why their original thought process was valid or not. Uh, you might be able to point out why that piece of information was so important. And uh, you m hopefully convince them of something about your point of view without it being a hierarchy and I will tell you that this is so. Moving on to one of our sections, uh, I'd like to bring an article into this. One of the classic teaching articles uh, is the One Minute Preceptor. So this was originally Kay Gordon, and the article is a five-step micro-skills model of clinical teaching in the Journal of American Board of Family Practice from 1992. And this whole article is about using these five steps to improve your questioning. And my favorite part of this article is they fi say five steps, but it's really only three steps. Oh, I like the one where they say five steps, but then they put in six for the summary step. We are going to be focusing, I think, down on the, so, so the five steps, uh, commit. I think that's one of the key things in all teaching is to get your students to commit to an answer because this way they can't say, oh, yeah, 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 I knew that all along. And we've definitely seen that. And so the, the key thing for this discussion is commit happens before the questioning. Stage two is the probing and the questioning. Stage one is the commit. So at the end of the presentation, I always say, what do you think and what do you want to do? So I can hear them do their, this is my commitment. Stage two, as Pick was saying, is really probe for supporting evidence. So why does the resident think that? Why is the resident basing their commit? What is their resident basing their commitment on? So then once you've 
entered your questioning land and you're uh, figuring out why they think what they think or leading them through the, the steps, you're probably coming up with places that you disagree. So uh, when do you stop with the questioning and start with the take-homes? So the next step would be teach general rules. And I think, I think this is really helpful. This is, let's not talk about minutiae. Let's take the case and your reasoning and look at a larger picture. Try to make your teaching points apply not to just this patient, but to global rules of practice. So I think this one helps you tie it back to the questioning with sort of the frame. Uh, you approach this patient as an altered mental status patient, uh, XYZ, but I'm going to try to give you the frame of delirium, which is kind of altered mental status that should be step one is rule out sepsis. And here's my general rules about old people with altered mental status. Something like altered mental status in the elderly uh, is sepsis to proven otherwise. So uh, steps four and five, as I said, barely count. Basically, step four is reinforce what is right. And step five is correct mistakes. So both of those together just mean that when you teach, you really need to be positive. And you don't want to say, you're an idiot because you thought this, this, and this. You always want to do the, well, these things you did absolutely right. And these things were somewhat less than right, but I liked where you were coming from. So you're coming uncomfortably close to the feedback sandwich where I like a thing, I don't like a thing, but don't worry, we like a thing. You like uh, pizza better than sandwich? Uh, this, this sandwich is death. Uh, we hate the sandwich. You will choke and die on the sandwich. I take, I, I agree with you, they are one thing. And what they are is pick something specific and tell them to do this again every time or don't do this this way every time. Uh, so, And then, of course, the ubiquitous step six summarize, which is, I don't know, Remember, I told you these things. Uh, but yeah, I, th I think five and six, uh, or step five and four and five are about pick a very specific behavior to comment on. So that there can be some improvement. I like it. So one minute preceptor, article worth reading out there. If we're going to summarize our discussion on questioning, mm -hmm. uh, what's your what's your take home? Uh, what's, what is your quick teaching tip based on questioning? So one of them is probably that when we are doing questioning, we don't wait long enough for the people to actually respond. We talk about they're constructing their thing in their brain, they're creating their own knowledge, they're exploring their decision pathway. But as they're doing it, I jump in with, let me help you here. Uh, so counting to three in your head after you stop talking uh, is a good way to, to make yourself not fill the uncomfortable silence. To me, that's part of the commitment. You've got to let them come up with an answer before you comment on it or direct them to the next thing. So give them a chance to talk. Uh, I think that sounds like a great teaching tip. My teaching tip on this one, based on our discussion, really, is good God, know when to stop. Uh, you could question forever, but eventually you need to either move on to other things or get the points across that you want. And I think that fits well for us. And I think that's where I went wrong right in the beginning uh, for the example that I gave. And I think part of it is the problem that uh, I like to hear myself talk and it is a global problem. I should just shut up more. So let's move on to the next section. And I think our next section is going to be, hey, that ain't a thing. So one thing uh, that I uh, get annoyed about that isn't a thing, and, and you were commenting on this, is uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff about kidney stones uh, that are a common complaint to get thrown around that aren't a thing. Seeing blood in the urine 
doesn't make it much more likely that the patient has a kidney stone. It's not a thing. So we know that kidney stones have a percentage of them that have blood in the urine, and you're saying you can't just reverse that. You can say that most kidney stones have at least microscopic hematuria, and you cannot say that the fact that your patient has hematuria means that in this undifferentiated group of ER patients is more likely to have kidney stone, and the likelihood ratio that's been studied for this is something like 1.2 to 1.4, which is pretty shitty. Okay, for me, if I'm going to talk kidney stone, my rant would be about giving fluids to kidney stone. We have this beautiful hydraulic model in our head that says if we give enough fluid, we will shoot that stone across the room and hit the wall. That is not the case. Been shown in multiple studies that the amount of fluid that we can possibly give in an emergency department isn't going to affect the hydrostatic pressure on that stone isn't going to increase passage, isn't going to change the amount of pain. So it's a beautiful cognitive model that we've developed that happens to be completely wrong. So Tom, are you in the practice of not giving fluid to your kidney stone patient? Or is it like Flomax, a evidence-less, but we're going to do it anyway, practice? So I often put in an IV in my kidney stone patients. I do not push fluids one way or another, but I do give IV medicines often enough for pain that I keep that vein open. You write KVO? I do not write (laughs) KVO. Often fluid is given, but to me it is not the important part of this. Absolutely. So if you threw up and you haven't eaten all day, you can have some fluid because maybe you're dry. You you don't need fluid for pain control. Uh, And I think there was at least one study that suggested that it might be worse for pain control to aggressively hydrate. Uh, So I agree. That's not a thing. And then you were talking the other day about possibly non-obstructing stones. So this is more of a vocabulary lesson than a, than a personal rant. Uh, it's intuitive that if someone writes obstructing stone, that probably means it's causing hydronephrosis, uh, hydrouretor, some kind of problem. Uh, and a non-obstructing stone is like not as bad. Like, oh, good, no hydronephrosis. When in reality, the radiology nomenclature is obstructing stones are intraureteral, for me, possibly a cause of the pain, whereas non-obstructing stones are pretty much intraparenchymal up in the kidney and the pelvis, and they don't, for the most part, cause pain. So as the stupid ER doc, I have to keep looking, and it's one of these places that I've had colleagues uh, sort of check off the box of, well, the CAT scans resulted, it was a kidney stone, and we're done now. Uh, And then they come back with, of course, their perf dab. And I have used this as a teaching point with residents on multiple. I, I believe whenever possible on looking at my own CTs and looking at my own x-rays and reading the radiology report versus showing the resident where this kidney stone is and how urine would go right by it, causing no pain at all, is, is another great teaching method. Great. So kidney stones, three things that are not a thing. I like it. And going into our last section, this section is something to try this week. And I wanted to pick a low-hanging fruit because this is our first uh, cast. For me, my low-hanging fruit is I will often start a shift saying, no matter what case you present to me, uh, no matter how simple or obvious the answer is, I want you to give me a diagnosis that includes a differential of at least five things. So I like that. I think that we emphasize making a broad differential to the med students all the time. I think there's a 
reasonable evidence base that uh, one of the errors that we commonly make premature closure is helped by just having a slightly broader differential. I use n plus 2. What do you think they might have? What do you want to do? Uh, okay, tell me two more things. Two more things on your differential that they might have. I, I could think of at least three cases where somebody had presented a differential and they're pulling things from left field. And it happens that the thing that they pulled for left field, you realize is your most likely diagnosis. Uh, when the zebra, uh, in retrospect, doesn't look like so much of a zebra. We've actually absolutely had a resident who enjoyed putting in zebras and hunting them. And the worst thing that could have happened for her happened. She found a porphyria. She diagnosed correctly a porphyria. And I told her, this is the worst thing that could have happened to you as a PGY2 because uh, you've now got an N of something that shouldn't happen until case 1000. It's so bad for you. Very sad. So all of you good teachers out there, go out there this week, expand people's differentials with this really simple teaching tip. There you go. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.